We're going to be in Titus. Can you open up to Titus chapter 1? We love preaching through the Word of God here at church, and we love hearing the Word of God preached. Amen? There we go. This is uh, uh, where we find not man's wisdom or novelty, but God's inerrant, perfect, eternal, infinitely powerful Word. And so we go there. Titus, as, as we sort of wrapped up last week we, with an introduction for, through verse 1 to 4, we saw that, <clears throat> uh, we saw that uh, uh, Titus was a ministry protege, a, a young man who was sent uh, from the Apostle Paul to the island of Crete, which is a very godless town. Uh, he was sent there in order to uh, 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 put, put things into, into right order. So what had happened is the gospel had gone to that island. It was making some, some headway, and, and there was probably a whole bunch of disorganized churches meeting in homes, lots of Christians ministering to one another and, and, and believing the gospel. But what they needed in order to, to go forward was some institutional structure. But we live in a day and age which wants to say uh, the uh, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, or wants to say it's all about the kingdom, this airy-fairy kingdom, but it's not about an institution. You know, the church is more than just these four walls, and we agree to all of that to an extent, but the church is an institution. It has structured leadership, disciplinary processes, rules, guidelines, activities that you need to be a part of in order to really call yourself a Christian. We have ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper that have to be done in certain ways. Like there's a lot of rules in Christianity. It's like there's a lot of rules of what you can and can't do in your marriage, right? It's not a free-for-all. There are rules, expectations, guidelines. There's a ceremony. And so, so, so also with the church, we need to realize that the institutionalized, not institutionalized, the institutional church is a God-ordained thing. But to become institutionalized, where it's, it's all about these four walls, ministry doesn't happen unless you're on the payroll in this building, that mindset is harmful to the mission of God. Nonetheless, Paul sends Titus in, and he's going to come and do basically two things. I'm going to read from verse 5 to 9, go back to verse 5, give us a little, little bit of an introduction, and then uh, go through each uh, uh, verse carefully. So let's read what the Lord would say to us through the pen of Paul and the power of the Spirit. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be an arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. May God bless the reading of his precious word to us this morning. So over in verse 5, we sort of get this introductory remark where Paul says, I've left you in Crete for this exact purpose, that you would put what remains into order. He's kind of mixing two, uh, two senses here. He's saying, uh, uh, build up and straighten out. He's, uh, uh, things are uncompleted, uh, incomplete, so, so they need to be finished straightly. Uh, so so the, the, the path is, is, uh, is wonky, get it straight. 
the building is incomplete, build the walls up. That, that's what he's saying. He's, he's put what is unfinished straight. <clears throat> build up, straighten things. And this happens through leadership. If, if, a, uh, if a team, a sports team, is, is not doing well by the end of the season, who's the first guy to get sacked and get sent down to Sydney Sharks? The coach. The co- he's ultimately responsible. He's ultimately leading. If a marriage falls apart, who does God come to and hold responsible? The husband. He's the leader. He's the head. If, uh, if a church goes astray, who is it that is ultimately responsible who God holds accountable? It's the leaders. Leadership is so important, just like um, maybe a bus driver Right? You see a bus driver with a whole bunch of high school students in the back going towards school. There's multiple reasons why it's so important that that bus driver does his job right. First of all, because he's responsible for everybody else's life. If he falls asleep at the wheel, they're all going to be a mess on the floor. Right? You need to stay awake. You can't be drunk. You can't be high. You've got to be responsible as a driver because everyone else will reap, uh, will reap uh, the harvest of what you sow. But there's a second reason. Because all these high schoolers go off of the bus, they've been picking up habits. And when they finally get their red peas, freedom, they're going to start driving the way they've seen drivers drive before them. So for these two reasons. Because the leader is responsible for everybody, but also once they're released, they will copy him as an example. For that reason, leadership is so, so important. God's answer to a church needing to be built, needing to be straightened, is the eldership role of pastor. And so uh, let, let me make one little clarifying remark here. Titus is not himself an elder. Titus is also not an apostle. Right? The, the, nobody has, in today's day and age, the authority to walk into a town and pick, up, uh, pick people and say, you're going to be an elder over this church. Get rid of that guy. You're going to be an elder in this church. Nor do we believe that there's a body of people, like the Presbyterian brothers of ours believe, that there are bodies of people who in teams can do that and make authoritative decisions for leadership in multiple churches. We believe, as Baptists, that the highest authority over the church is Jesus mediated through his word, and the next step is the local church eldership. There is no other body outside of this church that can come in and make decisions that overrule the people's vote and the elders' decisions. What Titus, Titus is often used as an example to sort of push against that reality. Titus is going with Paul's apostolic authority. While Paul is alive, he sent Titus as a quasi-apostle, right? not, to, not with all of the rights, responsibilities, and powers that an apostle would have, but with the authority to go lay hands on men, identify those who are fit, and appoint them into leadership over the churches. That's, that's this authority that no man has today anymore, this, this parachurch authority, but Titus was given it as an apostolic uh, representative. And as he's going to uh, appoint elders... We need, I just also want to, want to uh, explain or remind us that elders, right? We, different churches call them all sorts of different things. Uh, pastors, elders, presbyters, overseers, bishops. We don't include in that list priest or, or life coach or spiritual guide. That's, that's out in the trash can. But, but these ones are at least biblical words. <clears throat> and and re- they're all describing the same guy or the same group of guys. 
uh, in Scripture, we will see, for example, in, um, in Acts chapter 20, uh, what we see is Paul used all of these three terms, so main three terms in, in the New Testament for the leaders of God's church are uh, uh, presbyteros, where we get the word presbytery, um, that's meaning elder, an elder. Then the other word is, is, is bishop, which, which means overseer. And the other word is shepherd, which comes into English as, uh, through Latin as the word pastor. Pastor means shepherd. So we have pastor, elder, and, uh, and overseer. Some people try and divide those up into different roles. But as we see in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul actually speaks to the elders and applies all of these verses to them. Uh, but I've put a a terrible, let me me find it because I I love this verse. He says, verse 28 in chapter 20, he's speaking to the elders who he's brought to himself over in verse 17. He brings the elders to himself and says to the elders, pay careful attention to the flock. Flock is shepherding pastor language, which which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's saying the elders should shepherd because they're overseers. That's all three right there. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he does the exact same thing. He says that the elders should shepherd the flock over whom they, uh, over whom they are overseers. It's all these three titles all brought to the one man. So what we're going to see here is, is, his, is Paul's qualifications for leadership. Uh, Paul's qualifications for any man that will become an elder or pastor or overseer, bishop, in God's church. And here we are, we will look at them all under this main uh, title of blameless. The leaders in God's church must be blameless. That's Paul's word. He repeats it here twice. He'll repeat it also in 1 Timothy 3, where he gives the same qualifications. When we hear the word blameless, don't hear perfect. You weren't at all tempted to think that I was going to try and pretend to be that. Don't hear perfect. Here, it's not the word in the Greek for unblemished, unstained. It's the word for uh, having nothing against them at this present moment. That they, they have a witness, they have a reputation that is straight, that is built aright, that is, um, that is not disgraceful. There's nothing that would ruin his witness as a pastor. There's no marks against his name currently. It's blameless. There's, yes, we know he sins, but there's nothing that would mar his reputation. And in that reality, we're going to look at three different subsections. Paul's going to say, Titus, you're going into this godless little island of Crete. You're going to find bodies of Christians. You want to give to them men who can lead them and bless them. Look for these three things. Blamelessness in his family life. Blamelessness in his personal character and conduct. And blamelessness in his doctrinal purity and life. Now, since, as I said last week, the, the whole of Titus is, is really hitting this, this main theme of sound doctrine, good works. Sound doctrine, good works, both essential in a church. We're going to see it's essential in the, in the men of God who lead a church. So the leaders should be leaders in good works and sound doctrine. So we're going to see leaders in good works in his family, leaders in good works in his personal life, and he's a leader in good works in his doctrinal life. And we'll, we'll see that as it unfolds. So read with me verse 6 and 7. Uh, sorry, just verse 6 there. I'm still in Acts chapter 20. So Titus 1 verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, that's that word for blameless, the husband of one wife 
and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So here's the quality for an elder. And, and <clears throat> that, that his family life is so, so important. It's not to be underestimated. How, how many men seeking the great glory of church ministry up on a stage in front of a camera with his name and face plastered on posters who would seek that to the detriment of his family. The reality is that the family unit is the first ministry of any man. In, in one sense, I speak to every father and husband in the room. You have a church. You are a pastor. You have a flock who you are elders in and should oversee. In one sense, that is your family. Be faithful there. Jesus uh, teaches us in Luke that, that it is those who are faithful in the little, in the unglorious, in the unpaid, in the unfavored, in the unseen. It is those people who are raised up to be faithful over much. And so let us not oversee any man out there who, who maybe seeks the ministry, who, who, who has this sense of a call on your life, prioritize your family. This is the most honest gauge of a man's ability to spiritually lead. Psalm 128. It talks about the man who fears the Lord. And the necessary, the necessary implications or, or flow and effects of a man who, plea, who, who, who fears the Lord. You can jot it down for reading later. The, the first sign of a man who fears the Lord in all his ways is that his wife is a fruitful vine, that his children sprout up like olive shoots and grow in healthy ways. The first sign of a man of God who is fit to lead a church is that he spiritually leads his family. His wife flourishes. It doesn't mean they don't have struggles, they don't have difficulties, they don't have mental health or, or financial problems that strike them, but it means that through all those things, he wisely pastors his wife and children so that through it all, they flourish in Christ-likeness. So into specifics here, Paul says <clears throat> here, which has been the the. Uh, uh, the, the source of no end of contra controversy, he says that he must be the husband of one wife. Now, I'm not going to go through every, it, 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 this could be a sermon in itself, a sermon series in itself, but I'll, I'll recap the ones I don't agree with and then hit on what, what we believe here at church in the Reformed Baptist tradition. It could mean that he's saying the guy can't be single. You can't lead a church because of the temptations, because of the, the necessary skills you need if you haven't first been married. He needs to be the husband of a one wife. Well, that's not true because it, first of all, rules out Jesus. Always a bad starting point for any qualification. Rules out Jesus, probably wrong. Rules out Paul. Rules out Titus. Rules out some of the apostles. So no, that's, that's not what he must mean. It could mean, though, that he's the husband of one wife, meaning if ever he was widowed, uh, he, uh, he cannot then remarry. But that also does not apply because Scripture does teach us that at death, the end of the marriage covenant and all bonds uh, 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 cease. So, so it's not meaning that. Uh, also, it's, others will take it to mean that he has never ever been divorced or especially remarried. The, the people will hold that the marriage is, has this permanency, that no matter what happens, there is no biblical grounds for divorce. So therefore, before his Christian life or since he begun his Christian life, if he has been divorced or remarried, he's unfit to lead the people of God. And they would argue that this also applies to Christians. It's sin to do any one of those things. Well, what we rather see uh, through, the, through the Reformed uh, teaching and, and throughout um, uh, biblical exegesis, we, we see that 
God gives to us biblical grounds, regrettable grounds, but biblical grounds for divorce, where, where God would proclaim such a breaking of a spiritual union that he declares that it is fitting that that person, if reconciliation is impossible, can leave that person. So uh, Jesus gives the, the, the exception of adultery, that, that if a man has been, if, if a party has been cheating in adultery that is unrepentant, while God would encourage restoration, reconciliation, and gospel-like grace and love, that is a biblical grounds for divorce, which leaves the, uh, the, 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 the offended party unguilty. Also, we, we see in Paul that, that desertion or, or the refusal to be the husband you've covenanted to be or be the wife you've covenanted to be is a breaking of the marriage, whether you're still wanting to keep the piece of paper intact in or not. So a man moves away, deserts his wife. Paul says there's biblical grounds to officiate what has already occurred, which is the breaking of that marriage divorce, that, that marriage union. Uh, or or uh, numerous other <coughs> different applications can be worked through carefully, always with the, now this is not a sermon on divorce and remarriage, but, uh, but, but all of that to say that a man is not unfit for, mar- for eldership, if there is a past divorce or a, or, and, a, and a remarriage, rather, the literal phrase here is a one-woman man. What Paul is asking is, is, is this man a man who currently and in his Christian life has shown that he is devoted to one woman alone, that woman being his wife? If he's unmarried, then he would be devoted to that future wife, whoever she be. <clears throat> showing purity in his life, showing focus on one woman. This is all so important, so important that men would have monogamy of the heart because this generation, and, and not just this generation, all generations of men, but, but since leaders will rise up to lead this generation, they need leaders who are examples of what loving one woman looks like in a generation so overcome and bowed down to the idol of pornography and sexual pleasure and and hedonism and the chasing after all kinds of filthy, godless, whoring, cultural women, the church needs examples of men who say, godly men, real men who have a pair, love one woman and one woman alone for life and devote his life to her. That's godly men. That's godly manhood because that's Jesus. Jesus is devoted to his church. Jesus loves his church despite her offenses, despite her flaws. We've got plenty. He's devoted to her, gave his life for her. And as husbands do that also, they show the world what God's designed for marriage and the gospel really are. So men need to hold that up if they will be future or current elders in God's church. We also see that his fatherhood really matters. We need to have men who are showing the fatherhood of God and that that would be shown in his, in his, uh, in, uh, in his own family life. So again, this is quite brief, but, but, uh, but when it says there that um, his, his children are believers, the word behind that is that the children are faithful. So that some would argue that if you don't have all of your children, Christian, currently regenerated, you can't leave the church of God, which is, has been... Uh, aptly dealt with in the commentary, so I, I believe show that that's not what's going on here. But that rather, uh, Paul is saying if a man leads his family, they need, he needs to be able to demand respect and show leadership over his children. So that they're running a mark and he can't control them, he can't make them 
faithful obedience, at least least to the outward forms of Christian conduct? How is he going to do that for the church of God, which is bigger, more messy, more adults, more insubordination? How can he do that? So a man needs to show that he can lead a family in love and in generosity and in strength. Lordship is an important element to leading, but it's all servant lordship, as we'll see soon. So maybe you'd ask, what about the unmarried? You know, those who don't have kids who we can look at, those who, those who don't have a, 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 a children who have grown up and we can see the fruit of their life. Well, well to the, and maybe you're, you're a guy who's thinking for the eldership, thinking for a part that God might have called you to serve the, the church through the preaching, teaching, and pastoring. Well, well, for you, maybe you're unmarried. God would, uh, one of the ways that this principle could apply is we can look at where in your life you are leading those younger. Maybe you'll take up the, the, the children's church. Maybe you'll, you'll be hardworking in the youth ministry. Maybe you'll be evangelizing and discipling others. Let's look at what is the fruit of your labor in younger Christians. That, that can be a helpful, that will be a necessarily helpful gauge. <clears throat> so, All of these things, while there is godly ambition in men to become leaders for the sake of God's glory, there are these careful qualifications that he must be a leader in good works in his family life. We're going to move now on to how he must be a leader in good works in his personal life. Can you look with me at verse 7 and verse 8? I will go far over time, if I carefully explain every one of these characteristics, he's going to give 11. He's going to give five negatives and six positives. Fives do not be like this. Six, he shall be like this. And uh, I, I won't in, be able to go through every one of them. But if you are looking for a little bit more teaching, you can go back to our series that we did on the church. And uh, there I exegeted First Timothy 3, where Paul gives similar qualifications for the man of God uh, and, you, and you'll be able to find that in a sermon titled Eldership. But in a, in a slightly more brief way this morning, here's what we see. Verse 7, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There's that reminder again. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. <clears throat> you need to realize that that those who would be entrusted, as it says here, as God's stewards, those who are entrusted did not just walk in off the street with a, with a letter, handwritten letter, and a bit of cash in the back promising they've, they've got the qualifications. If you, you were going away for a couple of weeks, you've got a job over in, in Perth that you need to attend to coming back, you don't just put up a handwritten sign at the local bus stop one wife, three kids, two weeks, here's my address, first in, best dress, keep an eye on them, I'll be back in two weeks. Right? You, if, if, if you do need to bring a man to be a steward in your house, maybe you have a manor of some kind, you're careful about who's coming in there. You're checking him, you're, you're testing him. In fact, you're probably related to him, know him carefully and very well because to be entrusted with those things most precious to you you must ensure that that person is tested. So we see this in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul himself speaks of the reason that God has entrusted him with the gospel. is because he was first approved by God through testing. He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. That's God's, that's God's way. 
Don't, don't run to the top. Don't run to the front. Don't run to take on all the weight that you, friend, have not yet been prepared for. Ambition is good, but humble ambition gets to work in the little first. So you must be tested over time, must be tested through hardship, must be tested through ministry and service. And so he gives these, these uh, he says that a steward must be uh, uh, one who can be tested first, then entrusted. And these things are what you're looking for to avoid. Arrogance, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, or greedy. These really are, in pastoral ministry, the occupational hazards. If you're a minor, your occupational hazard is cave-ins, being run down by enormous uh, machinery, If you're a virologist, then then your occupational hazards will be deadly pathogens. If you're a pastor, the occupational hazards are your pride, your quick-temperedness, your temptations, your greed, your power. These things are deadly to those who do not wear, if you will allow me the analogy, the correct spiritual PPE, the armor of God personal protection equipment for all those who, who needed a hand there. Here's what he says. So, so don't be quick-tempered with so many pressures, peoples and problems that, that come on to the, the men of God. They need to be those who have been temp, uh, uh, tempered, right, like, like a steel blade has gone into the heat and been beaten into shape so that it does not shatter and shard and stab people on its first encounter in battle. The pressure that comes on a man of God needs to be able to be dealt with, brought to the Lord through prayer and the word of God so that he can bear up under the weight and not not stab out, not lash out at those around him. He must not be a drunkard. While we know that biblically alcohol is fine, as I've heard it said, it keeps the fun in fundamentalism, but it it holds great temptation and it needs to be held carefully. While we do with Luther believe that a a, a godly thirst for for beer is fine, right? He used to say, I did nothing. I did nothing. I just preached the word and drank beer and the Lord reformed the church. He did a little more than that, okay? We we understand. But but the reformers, others before him, Jesus, Paul, they know alcohol is okay, but a dangerous, a dangerous coping mechanism. A dangerous substance of any kind, not just alcohol, but any kind of uh, uh, substance that would take the mind of a man <clears throat> needs to be carefully guarded against. And, and, and when he does drink, he would not be one who drinks to excess, be unruly, be uncontrolled. Those things rule out a man of God to be able to lead people of God who need examples again in how to enjoy the world of God according to the guidelines of the word of God. Yes, all things are for our good, but, but the people need to be shown, led, guided. Those who are struggling with addictions themselves or with unruliness themselves, there needs to be care taken. And I'll say here, not violent or greedy. Maybe a good comparison would be to think of all those historical lessons we've learned by looking back at cult leaders. If you haven't done that, you haven't listened, there's some good podcasts out there. There's some great lectures. I encourage you, be familiar with the history of the cults. They will guard you against bad, conniving, manipulative leadership, even in good churches. And they are an amazing source of apologetic uh, equipping. 
nonetheless, think of cult leaders, how, how they will be violent and greedy, lashing out at anybody who would push against their power. They, they force people into tasks. They, they promise eternal rewards that they can bestow. They pressure people into serving them. They manipulate minds. They beat people into submission. But the men of God are those who, who will push you into kingdom productivity, who will put a good amount of pressure on you to serve Jesus, not them. There will be men who, who bring you into a, a reaping of eternal rewards that Jesus promises, serving Jesus and others, not barraging you or degrading you until you serve them. Where, where leadership in a church has that, you flee, you flee. And in greediness as well, this is a, this is a motive where, where people will try and enter the, the, the leadership of the church thinking Christians are just a, they're a gullible bunch, they're a generous bunch, and if I just twist the, the, twist their, uh, the, the, the knife in their back a little bit and remind them of, of how much I've done for them, I can get them giving. They can buy me a jet, buy me some amazing shoes, a, a kit out in my house with the, with the finest gold-plated tiles. This is what men, men do who do not know their God. Men who know God know that the true pleasures are at his right hand in his eternal rewards, not to be grasped at here on earth. Keep an eye out for that. Pray for your pastors that that would not be a temptation or motivation. <clears throat> but here's the positives. Here's the positives. That they must be hospitable. They must love good. They must be disciplined, self-controlled, holy, Upright, of course, these are all really quite self-explanatory. Let me run through them. <clears throat> Hospitable, they must, their life and their heart is open to other people. They, they love the foreigners. They love the people they don't know. They welcome and give them love as Jesus does. They are lovers of good. They're not those who delight in evil or, or allow sin as, as long as it benefits their agenda or their goals or their person. And here you'll see this phrase, uh, these, these, this triplet, Self-controlled, upright, and holy. That's, that's uh, how he relates to all people, uh, to all, all, all of his relationships. Self-controlled is how he relates to himself. Upright or, or righteous living is how he, how he relates to other people. He's always right in his dealings. And holy is how he relates to God. You want a pure man in relationship with God who deals with other people rightly and fairly and, and well and who in and of himself is self-controlled. Paul will uh, summarize all of these traits that he has given to us in this word, disciplined. These men who have come to realize the power of a controlled mind under the sway and leadership of the Holy Spirit. They've come to realize that a focused mind, body, and spirit engaged for the good of God's people is a mighty weapon in the hands of God. They're aware of their own downfalls. They know their own temptations, but they master their flesh for the good of God's people. They are well trained by God so that they can train others. Those men are ready to lead the church. Where you do not see these things, where you see pride, where you see arrogance, where you see, see uh, leadership that leads you towards themselves and not to Christ, you flee like Lot fled Sodom and Gomorrah and do not look back. Expect that God will pour down his fire from heaven on those men. That is the reality. That is the importance. 
And we see that they are leaders in good works in their doctrinal life. Read with me verse 9. This is is such a needed verse today. He must, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. You need to realize that the entire Christian ministry of a pastor, an elder, an overseer, the entire thing can be summarized as the communication of truth. That's their priority. Communicating to you the truth from the word and ensuring that that has been understood, applied, believed, loved, delighted in. This word pressed into every crevice of your mind and lived out in your life. Truth is the marker of a biblical ministry. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, it will speak in this way of the man of God's doctrine and his life. Listen, we've just been speaking about his life and his family, his life and his personal conduct. Now we're talking about his beliefs, his doctrinal clarity and orthodoxy. But we need to see that they're connected. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, Paul says to Timothy, an elder, keep a close watch on yourselves. And on the teaching, persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your leaders. Do you see the emphasis here? A man's life and doctrine are connected. However, the the life is is the flagpole. Let's make this this analogy. That, That the life is not itself the point. You're not helped as a people to have a man who lives well if the truth is not able to be communicated. The the flag is the point. The flag is what you look to. The flag is what communicates. The flag is what holds up the message or the icon. The life of the man is the pole which upholds it. If it crumbles, down comes the message. But friends, without the truth, without the message, without the preaching, teaching of the Bible, it's just a pole in the way of a good view. Raise up the flag of truth that people may rally to it and fight for King Jesus. Listen here that, that the orthodoxy of a man, the power of this man, if, if he's going to fulfill these qualifications, is not that he is simply a good teacher or communicator. The power, the sign of orthodoxy, the sign of God's approval is the content of his message. He must be able to teach. We see that in 1 Timothy 3. But the, the point of the teaching is not his skill, but his content. It says here in verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. That is that there is a body of teaching we, we see in the other pastoral letters. There is a body of teaching often referred to as the faith, the core doctrines, the applications to Christian life, the necessary things we must believe that has been handed from the apostles to the pastors, crystallized in the word of God, never to change. Don't don't think that ministers, pastors, Christian leaders need to be innovators. They need to be the creative type. They need to be novel. They need to be always able to come up with something new. That's the kind of guy they need to be. They need to be the artistic who who can come up with new things and then run with it. That is not the image we should have. 
They're not like those who, <laughs> who will create their own, uh, their own uh, 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 creations or, or devices or inventions and then try and, try and sell it to the, to the people like some, some cosmic pyramid scheme. Rather, elders are like sailors. They are like, they're like captains of a ship. They don't create something themselves and then try and propagate it. They learn the way that has been set out. They step in under other men, are trained for it, take it, and go on the direction it has always been going or get out of the bridge. That's the elders. That's the pastors. I don't care that I'm in a 2,000-year-old ship. This thing has never sunk. This thing is going forward to glory. I'm fine to be a nameless man who, like Count Zinzendorf said, preach the gospel, die, get buried, be forgotten, hand it on to somebody else. That's God's purpose. I, I think it was Judson who said, God buries his messengers, but the message goes on. That should be the, the humble outlook of a man who is going to take this leadership. I will receive the trustworthy word as it's already been taught so that I may teach it, give sound instruction in sound doctrine. Do you hear all these words? Instruction in sound doctrine. So there's the ability to pass it on and to teach. But also this other side. This is what Calvin would say are the, the two voices of a pastor. He must be able to teach and give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There needs to be able to be in, in every man of God that loves his family an ability to throw a punch when a guy comes to harm his wife. It, Calvin said in a slightly uh, more eloquent way, he said, he said that shepherds must have two voices, one to gather the sheep and another to guard off the wolves. He must have that, that crook that pulls the sheep near and the other end of the stick to beat the wolves to a bloody death. Men can't do that. Then, then they're, they're unlike that example we see from Nehemiah who, who instructed the people as they're building the wall to build with one hand and in the other hand have a spear or a sword so that as others come to tear down, they can be run through with a blade. That's, that's the Christian ministry. We might sort of cringe at that and say, how unloving. Why don't we just focus on the positives? Because friends, that's ignorance and naivety of the real world we live in. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices, how he confuses, how he, how he makes, he uses ignorance to, to spread gossip and, and heresy and bring the church crumbling down, if he may. So the men of God need to be realists. And while that, that sword stays in its scabbard, it's there. When it's needed, it shines and cuts. Paul requires this of Titus. He requires this of men who will rise up he requires it of every elder who will stand in a pulpit to love, defend, build up, and bless the Word of God. Let me, let me give one, one, um, one application here. Because I know that not everybody who hears this will, will, uh, will desire to be a preacher, an elder, a pastor. But, but every one of you need to know who to look for to follow. Really, not to follow, but to be, to be pointed to Christ by you want to know what sort of pastors are biblical. You want to know who to vote for. You want to know, but I also want to share with you a warning. That it is the people of God who create false teachers. Just as a bacteria, right, a, a, a pathogen cannot grow in, a, in an empty vacuum. It, 
It needs some kind of host. It needs some kind of uh, right atmosphere where that mold can grow, where that virus can spread. And the atmosphere where a false teacher can rise, can, can culture, can grow, and can propagate his germs are a people who are not hungry and intentional about your devouring of the word of God. Paul will say, as he charges Timothy over in 2 Timothy 4, he charges him to preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. He's, he's saying, do all of these things because the time is coming when false teachers will arise and take over good churches. It's not the passage. That's not what he says. He says, rather, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They'll complain about the length of it. They'll complain about the harshness of it. They'll get sick of the repetition of it. They'll desire for something novel, something new, something exciting, something miraculous, something shiny, something more charismatic. They'll desire those things and it will be the death of them like a child chasing after a bubble going out onto the highway and being collected by a 12-wheeler. The people, the people of, of which the future elders will rise up, of which the elders are a part, we are an easily distracted bunch. Read your word, know your word, hunger your word, demand the word preached. No excuses. Because it is those people who, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. False teachers. Do not steal good congregations. False teachers are God's judgment on uncareful, ungodly congregations. He gives them that which they will love. He gives them that which they will enjoy, and it is to the destruction of their soul and the rest of the, the church that will rise up after them. Be careful who you, who you listen to. Be careful. But let me say here that the really one way you need to, you can, you can, you can judge a, a church and, and their leadership by, by asking this question, what's the path to that leadership? What's the path to that leadership? Because if the path to leadership in, in some church is, is all this, this secret, background, crazy, miraculous, performing that is done out front in front of everybody, but, but all, the, all the training is secret, all, the, all what they're really being taught and, and, and uh, led in and groomed through is unknown by the people. If you think, if you're, you're a man of God who loves the word, who can teach the word, who, who loves to see souls saved through God's work in your life, and you think, I'd love to be pastor in this church, but I just couldn't be. There's this whole experience you need to go through. There's a whole by you know your path, not a good internship, but but this this other life you need to live outside of the world. That's probably not a good leadership. Leadership needs to be be grown in front of people's eyes. The path to leadership, as Jesus showed us, is every day faithfulness in the little, dying to self. For our people, in the view of all, that's why Paul said, do these things in the sight of all that all may see your progress. If the normal, hardworking guy who loves his Bible, protects his wife, 
raises his family, and lives a godly life, if that's just not enough to be a pastor in this church, if that's, that's far too low because where your miracles, your anything, your, or whatever it is that you want to add to these things, that's not biblical leadership. Jesus shows us that sinners, normal, ordinary sinners, can be turned into leaders through the faithfulness in the everyday. Friends, that's how Philippians 2 tells us Jesus received his crown. Not by some, some off on a, on a mountaintop experience. Not by some self-aggrandizing glory ministry. But by laying his life down. Mark 10, 45. The Gentiles lord it over one another. It must not be so among you. For those who will be the first must be last of all. Those who will be great among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's the authority king title, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the path to Christian leadership because that's the path to Christ's glory. Humble, faithful, everyday obedience, resting on that, that life given as a ransom for many. Friends, you're here this morning and all of these have been said and that's helpful and it will be applicable to you in your, in your life. But, but let us return, not looking to elders, not looking to pastors, to shepherds, but the chief shepherd who himself became the lamb, who was not just king, but also the ransom laid down for every one of us. Your hope is not that you have good enough elders, never enough. The greatest church will have deceived people in it, thinking they're saved because of what they experience on a Sunday. Friends, you, have you come under the, the, the chief shepherd of Christ? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you brought your sins, not to your pastor or a priest for confession, as, as important as that may be in the Christian life, have you brought your sins to the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ? who was offered up, killed, butchered by the hands of men, but slain by the will of God for our salvation. Have you come there? Does he rule you? Does he guide you? Does he shepherd you? And if not, friends, you need to bring your sin to Jesus today. This last song that we sing, I want you to be considering, where do you stand in relation to Jesus? Because just like he gathers the sheep, he will one day fight off the goats. He will separate us, the true faithful and those who are hypocrites, pretenders who call themselves names that they had no right to do. And Jesus will put them into the line of eternal fire and damnation in hell. So friends, believe on Jesus today. Salvation will be granted to you. Trust that he will shepherd you as, as no human can. He will guide you through this life and he will bring you safe to eternity. Can you, let's do something different. Can you just stand with me as we pray? as we thank God for what he's done through the word in the last 12 years, as we look forward as we pray these truths into our heart and as we prepare for our last final worship. <clears throat> Father God, before you and your eyes, every heart is laid naked. For you see our deepest and darkest secrets and sins and rebellions. You see our, our goals and our ambitions and our desires. You see which of those are godly and ungodly. God, I pray that those who know you, you would speak to their heart today and, and testify by your spirit that they are children of God. 
that they are those who have been justified in the blood of the Lamb. To your true sheep, Lord, please speak this upbuilding, straightening word of encouragement. To any, Lord, who are here today and do not know you, maybe they are pretending, maybe they, they are trying to run as outwardly as they can, Lord, speak to them and call them into your fold. Speak to them, give them repentance. Show them the, the, the eternal consequence of their sin and let them to see your glory. That by giving their life to you, God may be rightly, truly glorified as he is worthy of. God, in this church, would you raise up future leaders, those who meet your qualifications of not perfection, but blood-trusting, gospel-redeemed, biblical shepherds. Would you please do that, Lord? We may raise them up here, send them out, Use them as missionaries, all for the glory of King Jesus. Lord, may you secure, preserve, and protect this church as one that loves you, but one that needs you to continue to uphold our love in you and our purity for the love of the gospel. We thank you, God, in the name and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.